You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Hey man, you can be seated. Good morning, 10 o'clock. You're watching in the chapel and good morning, 10 o'clock here in the Life Center Live. We just started a brand new series last Sunday morning called The Good Work of how God can transform us from the inside out. Let me just make this statement to begin this morning. There's a massive difference between a supernaturally changed heart, that's the good work, and a routine attempt to simply improve our behavior. That's moral humanism. There is a, a colossal contrast between an inside work that God not only wants to do, but can do in your life, and just naively wanting to make a few changes on your own. One is empowered by the God of the universe. The other one is empowered, or maybe I should say weakened, by our erratic desires and all of our inconsistent disciplines. Last week, we looked at God's love expressed in Jesus Christ and how we can receive that love and begin a a good work, an internal work, a work from the inside out in our lives. Uh, We saw that love coming from Jesus as a foundation of that interior work. His love received, his love accepted, his love believed, his love established in our lives because of the cross. And we ask this very simple question, how is that possible? Like, How do you then accept that love? How do you believe that love? How do you receive it and build your life upon that love? How how does that love become an interior work? And, And the answer actually sounds a little simple, but it's so simple, it's true by believing upon Jesus and just walking in him every day. That's how we can build our lives upon his love that actually serves as an interior work in our lives. Last week we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we looked on that that foundation of, of God's love expressed through Christ. And we learned last week that all those little attributes in 1 Corinthians 13 aren't really just behaviors that we're trying to chase after. Uh, actually just the opposite all those explanations of love in first corinthians chapter 13 are describing a person the person of christ and his love for us and so you don't have to turn there but let me just kind of remind you what we saw last week in first corinthians chapter 13 we saw two consequential things i believe so first corinthians 13 4 through 5 says that love is patient that love is kind it does not envy it does not boast it is not proud Love is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Here's the two consequential things I want you to see in those two verses. The first one is the beginning of verse 4, that love is patient and kind. Love is patient, love is kind. The second consequential thing I want you to see in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 and 5, is the very end of verse 5, where it says that love keeps no record of wrongs. Now those two things right there speak of a word I want us to talk about today, and the word is grace. These two things speak of grace. And so what is grace? Well, biblically, we see it here. Grace is the patient kindness of God that does not keep a record of wrongs for those who are in Christ. So grace is what we're going to look at together today and how God's grace can do something in us, in our hearts, changing us from the inside out. Here's the foundation that we'll build upon with this statement right here. Realizing that we are guiltier than we know, but more forgiven by Jesus than we can imagine. That's the essence of God's grace. Some of you might be thinking right now, you know what, preacher guy, I'm, I'm fairly guilty. Oh no, you're guiltier than you know. But let me tell you today how incredible the forgiveness of God 
because of his grace can be for your life. If you're here today, not a Christian, you're here today skeptical about Christianity, here today wondering what following Jesus and loving Jesus is all about, let me just say here's one of the most beautiful things about knowing and loving and following Jesus. He forgives everything. So yes, we are guiltier than we even know, but we can be more forgiven by Christ than we can even even imagine is the essence of God's grace. So God's grace is the unearned love of God that's solely expressed through his son, Jesus Christ. And when that's fully received in your life, then, then you're free. You're free to live. You're, you're free to, to follow Jesus. You're free from fear. You're free from performance. You're free from, from image management. You're free from humanism. But only an experience of grace that comes from God through Christ Jesus can change your heart rather than just restrain your heart. So here's the passage I want us to look at together today. Would you go with me, please? The very first book of the New Testament. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18 together. I encourage you to have your copy of God's word or at least to go to your device this morning, your smartphone, go to that app. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18. Once we get there, let's do not close God's word. Let's see what God has to say to us today. Matthew 18. Uh, we're gonna pick up right in the middle of this chapter. Jesus has been sharing some parables, speaking about the kingdom of God. So this is Jesus speaking, the, the, the greatest teacher of all time, the, the son of God teaching us. Matthew 18, let's begin in verse 23. This is called the parable of the unforgiving servant. Um, I like to call it the parable of a forgiving king. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with the servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When the fellow servants heard what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Here's what Jesus concludes. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your Heart. The very last word that Jesus says there is the most operative word of this entire parable. I underlined it in my Bible three times, the word heart. And because I can be a little overdramatic sometimes, I circled it as well. Just to kind of remind me, the essence of this parable is about the heart. 
Uh, let, let's gather a little information about what, what Jesus was teaching here, the magnitude of the debt. First of all, go back to verse 24. I'm assuming your Bible's still open. Well, what did the, the first servant owe? He owed 10,000 talents. Now, sometimes it's hard to make the equation between New Testament currency or even New Testament measurements and try to bring it into 2020 with our measurements and our currency. But more or less, a, a talent was 20 years of wages for a laborer. So 20 years of wages for a laborer was, was one talent. So let's just kind of take it into um, everyday uh, America. Let's say that the average laborer in America brings home $25,000 a year. The average laborer working 40 hours a week, $25,000. That $25,000 you have to multiply by 20 to get to a talent. And for you liberal arts majors, that's $500,000. I did the math for you. So that's $25,000 times, times 20 years. That's a half a million dollars, $500,000. But then you have to multiply it by 10,000. It's 10,000 talents. Let me help you again. That's $5 billion. So this servant was not just a cook. He probably was ruling massive amounts of land for this king. He somehow squandered this $5 billion, an enormous sum, either by gross mismanagement or maybe by corruption. And it seems like Jesus, in teaching this parable, made that number so big, so up there, and here's kind of a key thing, that the ability to repay it was actually simply impossible. But look what happens in verse 26. After the $5 billion account is asked for, verse 26, this servant falls down, he, he begins to plead, he begins to implore, he begins to beg. And what does he say? Be patient. Now the word patient in, in English language, we've kind of made that a, a soft word, but it's not a soft word. When Jesus was teaching this, it was not a soft word. The, the original word right here in the original language is the word macro through mayo. Macro, you know, if you've taken macro financing or macroeconomics. It just means like a large scale. It means like a high view. It means like a long picture. Thumeo means leniency or it means grace or thumeo can mean in Greek patience as well. So here's actually what the servant was saying. He was saying here, I'm asking for long grace. I'm asking for large scale patience. I'm looking for enormous leniency because there's no way I can pay back five billion dollars. Let's look at the magnitude of the next debt very quickly. This is in verse 28. When that second servant or that fellow servant owed him a hundred denarii. Now, denarii is the plural of denarius. And denarius was one, day's, uh, one day wage, one, day's of, one day of pay. So you have to take that one day. Let's go back to that $25,000 a year guy. We'll take one day and multiply it by a hundred. That's $6,840. Now, $6,840 is a lot of money. And I look at some college students out here. I mean, that sounds like $5 billion to you, but $6,840, that's pennies on the dollar. That's, that is nothing, comparatively speaking, to the $5 billion. What does this guy do? Verse 29. This should sound familiar. He falls down. He pleads. He begs. He implores. What does he say? The same thing. Would you please give me some macro through mayo? Would you please be patient with me. Would you give me a lot of grace? Would you give me some enormous leniency here? And I'm sure that exact same sequence as verse 26 is not lost on anybody here in this room. Let's look this morning at three things this king does in grace. 
Three things that this king does in grace. We see this all in verse 27. Here's the three things. Number one, he takes pity. In other words, he, he feels compassion. This is, this is the king who is owed $5 billion. He takes pity, it says in verse 27. He felt compassion. Now, make sure you catch this in the parable. Jesus is making sure we all understand that this king was busy, was important, was wealthy, was an owner. We see in verse 25, he was called the master. He was powerful. And yet in his busyness and in his power and all of his wealth, something happens here that, again, gets lost in the English language. It says here that he felt pity. You know what that actually means in Greek? And it's kind of gross, but I, I love saying gross things. It means that his bowels were moved. It's why we say in our vernacular today, it was like a punch to the gut. Or we use the term gut-wrenching. It literally means that his intestines began to turn inside out. His intestines began to yearn to do something. In other words, the king felt it in his gut. That this man who owed $5 billion is on his knees before him, pleading for long grace, pleading for leniency. And it moved the heart of this king. The second thing this king does is he cancels the debt. He doesn't take revenge. He does not even make this person pay up. But listen to this. If there's nothing else you catch this morning, there's some deep theology you're about to hear right here. He takes, this king takes on the debt onto himself. Oh, don't lose this. Someone lost $5 billion that day. Don't miss this. The king had to pay it. The king lost in this transaction. You see the cross there? You see, Christian, our sins did not just disappear. They were born in the body of Jesus on the cross. Our, our sins just weren't thrown away somewhere. Our sins were placed upon the perfect Lamb of God. He canceled the debt, but someone had to pay the debt. The forgiver in this parable lost it. Here's the third thing the king does in grace. He sets the person free. But not only does he say, okay, your debt is forgiven. He also says, but you're, you're free. I will give you your freedom. There's no chains of debt. There's nothing hanging over you. You can walk out of here with zero condemnation. You owe me nothing. Now let's look at the opposite. Three things the servant does in gracelessness. And when you see the side-by-side -side juxtaposition, the side-by-side -side comparison, you see that, again, this servant does the exact opposite of what the king does. Number one, he takes no pity. There's nothing in his, in his heart, there's nothing in his gut that's even stirred at all. He has no compassion for the condition of this fellow servant. He makes no connection between the pity taken on him previously and the pity that he now can give to somebody else. Second thing, he demands payment on the debt. You need to pay. The debt will not be forgiven. This guy makes no connection whatsoever of the grace he just received and now the opportunity he has to give grace to somebody else. And he places the person in prison. If you can't pay in cash, you'll have to pay with your freedom. You'll have to pay with the moments of your life. 
And there's something else in here. I, I imagine you caught it in verse 28 when we first read through it. And, and it's something we sometimes we kind of skip through. But look at verse 28. He puts this, this servant that will, will not forgive, the guy who has just forgiven five billion, puts his hands around this other servant's neck. The word in your Bible might use the word seizing. The word in your Bible might use the word choking. It's the same word for the word drowning. This guy was just given his life. And now he's considering taking the life of another. No pity. No canceling out of the debt. No distribution of grace. Why? This is huge. Why? Because his heart hadn't changed. There was no good work happening inside. So consider these two statements with me. Number one, taking advantage of grace without understanding the cost of grace leads to an unchanged, callous life. If, if all you're doing, if all I'm doing, if all we're doing is just collecting grace, or if you will, hoarding grace, and we just kind of see this transactional, okay, God, I'm going to sin, so I need a little grace. I'm going to sin, I need a little grace. I'm going to sin, I need a little bit more grace today. Then I would submit to you, there is no true realization of the cost of that grace. Of what gave you that grace. There's no true realization of the costly cross of Jesus. And I hope I can say this in love. There's nothing happening on the inside. If all you're doing is just collecting grace and not realizing where it came from and how it got to you and what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call the costliness of that grace, then there's no good work. It's an unchanged, callous life. You see, grace is not transactional. Grace is transformational. It's not just, hey, God, I'll trade you a sin every day for a little bit more of your grace. It's, God, your grace is so rich, so real, so freeing. It is changing me from the inside out. So here's the second statement. It's just the opposite. Then comprehending the cost of God's grace and receiving it transforms your heart. And then you become a grace distributor yourself. Comprehending where that grace came from. Again, remember the king, someone lost the five billion the king had to write it off. The king had to absorb that loss in the same way for us as followers of Christ. Christ had to absorb that loss, had to absorb our sin. You see, this is transformation from the inside out. You still need grace. Oh, we'll definitely need grace. We'll need grace every day. In fact, Romans chapter 5, it's grace by which we even stand. But you see, now you see where the grace comes from. You begin to realize the costliness of that grace then you will joyfully, freely, gladly give it to others. Kevin Tunnell was 17 years old when he got drunk at a party right outside of Washington, D.C. Got into his car, was driving back to Fairfax, Virginia. And Susie Herzog, an 18-year-old girl, was pulling out of her driveway less than one mile away from her house. And Kevin hit her head-on, killed her immediately. Mr. and Mrs. Herzog were called and said, there's been a terrible accident. Your daughter, Susie, was in this accident and she's not going to make it. They quickly drove to the accident scene and pulled up and saw the blue Volkswagen just completely smashed. Their daughter did not make it, was killed upon impact. 
Kevin, of course, was taken to trial, was given a three years um, sentence, but suspended three years probation and one year of community service. This angered the Herzogs. So they sued him, took him to court, sued him in civil court for wrongful death. We're demanding $1.5 million for the death of their daughter. The judge was about to give them that $1.5 million, but they decided to sell it out of court instead for a completely different number. The number was $936. Kevin had to decide, wait a minute, give $1.5 million that you're demanding from me or $936, I'll take the $936, but here's the caveat. You will write a check every Friday because that's the day that daughter died upon. For 18 years, that's how long she lived for $1. And you're going to write it to our deceased daughter. Make, put her name on that check every Friday. For two years, Kevin Tunnel did this. 100 checks into it. And the check stopped coming. The Herzogs were no longer receiving these checks for $1 from Kevin given to written out to the name of their daughter. They grew angry again. They demanded that he write that $1 check. In fact, went to the judge. Kevin was brought back into to trial, brought back into the court, was demanding them. To, he was demanded to, to give these $1 checks every week. And he said, every time I write out a check, I sob. I've lost my job. I can't, I can't sleep at night. I am so guilty of this. The Herzog said, no, you will give us this check. Kevin spent 30 days in jail, was abused, assaulted in jail. Even wrote them a note saying, what if I pre-make $1 checks for the next 16 years? And I just hand that to you all at one time. And they said, no, here's what they said. We have no intention of forgiving you. We are not touched by your tears nor touched by your guilt. We are not forgiving you. And you will not forget our girl. Verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You can't forgive anybody from your heart until your heart has been changed. And your heart's not changed until you realize the cost of grace given to you from God through the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. Then your heart becomes new when you realize the costliness of grace. When you realize from which you were purchased, this grace, the blood of a perfect lamb of God. What about you? What about you? Are you taking advantage of God's grace, just constantly demanding it, looking for it, hoarding it, holding on to it? I would say if so, it means there's no good work happening in you, and I bet you have a hard time showing grace to others. Or are you comprehending the height, the, the depth, the length that God went in the cross of his son Jesus to express to you his grace, his costly grace but his free grace if 
that's you, I bet you have no difficulty at all in giving grace to others. That is a supernaturally changing heart. Would you stand with me, please, and let's pray together. And God, we just say that's what we want. Not some exterior behavior modification. Not just naively thinking we can change ourselves and set goals. And the most disciplined person in here can't change their own heart. The kind of hearts are transformed from the inside out when we realize the costliness of grace the lengths that you went to give us new hearts. That you, O King, absorbed our sin. What grace is that? Not that our sins were just written off. Our sins were put on. Put on the perfect, spotless treasure of heaven, Jesus the Christ. God, we want to revel in that grace. We want to receive that grace. And then we want our hearts to distribute it to others so that we know there's life in us and you're producing a good work. What great grace you have saved us with. It's free. It's freeing. We're now free to love you. We're now free to live in Christ. We're now free to love others. So God, it's in that grace that we pray and it's in that grace that we sing. Amen.